With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I was basically thrown in the back of a van with a blanket tossed over me so that I wouldn't be seen as I entered a farm because the last, the last thing they wanted would be a journalist. They smuggled me into this farm this wave of just like raw sewage kind of washed over me as far as the smell. When they lifted the blanket and let me stand up, what I was, what was in contrast to that smell was this farm of, of grapes. Everywhere you looked was table grapes. Probably 108 degrees. And I was slowly, as we got out of the van, the guys kind of went into the small, very decrepit house and came out with two younger men and one older man following them who ended up, again, didn't speak Spanish, but had been smuggled onto this farm by a Russian farmer who had them far enough out from any connection that they basically were kept as slave labor. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> Okay, so we're on episode three of our series on food, conflict, and unity. And in this series, we're exploring the life stories of culinary pioneers. So it's like people who seek to transform cuisine, preserve culture, basically just unite the world at large. And today we're talking to Rick Namias, who started fighting food insecurity in his own backyard and recovered almost $3 million worth of produce since 2009. And so I wanted to talk to Rick. So we met up in a little suburban street in Glendale where we harvested some lemons from someone else's backyard. This is an unusual lemon tree. I don't know the name of the varietal, but it's exotic in the sense that it obviously isn't the full big lemons. They're wrinklier and they're smaller. Probably be good in a, a gin and tonic. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my guess is they will probably go into a lot of different birds and vegetable dishes and whatnot. So that's Can you great. Describe, like, I guess the, the landscape a little bit. And, yeah, we and are like in. What this um, tree looks like a little bit more. We're in um, suburban Glendale, right up against, literally looking over the LA River, which is kind of a treat. Oh, I um, know. Yeah. Rick was born upstream from Glendale in Tarzana. And besides being an L.A. native, he's an award-winning documentary photographer, a formerly trained cook, and the founder and CEO of Food Forward. Uh, Food Forward is a nonprofit that's about 12, 12 and a half years old. And we recover produce that would otherwise go to waste and donate it to agencies that food insecure communities in about eight California um, counties and uh, seven states and a few tribal lands. 
And this regional operation started at a much smaller local level. At first, it was just a one-man show, but slowly the word started to spread throughout LA. And it's because the need for food in that area became apparent. I started harvesting a block and a half from my house. You know, the estimate we got early on from the California Ag Department was that there is a million homes in LA County that have a fruit tree on their residence. That's a lot of fruit trees. That's a lot of potential growth and that's a lot of potential um, fruit for people in need. Because if you look at this, there's several hundred pieces of fruit on this one tree. And if this homeowner was into, you know, exotic lemons and into gin and tonics, he might use 10% of it in a good year. The rest of it's going to drop on the ground and it becomes um, waste. It, It gives off carbon emissions. It attracts rodents. There's a lot of downsides to not dealing with a fruit tree that's mature. I imagine this uh, feeds all the day I met Rick, there was only two of us. We're in this backyard with a few lemon trees, not any grass on the ground, and lemon trees looked like they needed a little bit of water. But we were reaping the benefits from what Rick calls fruit therapy. But the benefits didn't stop with us. When Food Forward started, it was considered a win-win-win-win-win. I lost track of how many wins. A win-win-win-win, four wins situation. Food banks got fresh fruits and vegetables. Those donating got the feeling of helping out those in need. Citrus trees are getting healthier and getting picked, and volunteers get to spend time in trees. And as the operation grows, so does the number of people who gain from the project. You know, we're um, really looking at how many uh, sides to this equation really help the community. There's an educational piece. I mean, this is historic Glendale. Again, if this, yeah, with the river here, look, I mean, from from this point, without moving, there's another lemon tree. Uh, There's another tree. I just, yeah, you just turn around, you start, you start looking at things. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, there is a we call it fruit, you know, like fruit vision, where you really just start seeing these bright um, orange and yellow globes up against the blue sky when you're harvesting and that's exactly how food forward was born is i was up in a tree about 15 feet yeah and besides that kind of euphoric childhood feeling you had when you were five years old picking oranges with your dad is you get a perspective on the community that you don't get when you're on the ground and so that's it sounds very rick's story encapsulates a new version of farm to table food and we're about to walk you through it But to understand his story, first we have to head northwest of L.A. to the suburban neighborhood of Tarzana. What was it like? Like, what are some of your earliest memories growing up over there? And what were you taught about, like, food and and its relationship to the community? I'll start by saying I grew up in a really privileged background. I grew up never having to worry about having food on my table. That is a really a privilege a lot of us don't take as privilege, but that was the truth. I was also a really shitty eater. My parents, the family would go out for Chinese food and I wouldn't eat. And, and ultimately... Why wouldn't you eat? I, I didn't like the exotic taste of Chinese food. So they literally would bring in McDonald's for me, oh believe God. it or not. It was, and that was an indulgence. Well, neither of my parents graduated college. They each had a couple of years of city college in Brooklyn. And my dad was a real scrapper and created a business that thrived in the insurance industry. And they both were really clear they wanted their kids to have a a more formal education than they had. 
but also there was a really strong work ethic. I mean, I forged work papers to have you a part- forged work papers. Why? Because I wanted a part-time job. It, it was going to give me a sense of productivity and contribution. Contribution to what? Uh, contribution to society. You know, it's one thing to like hang out and run around and be, you know, 12, 13 years old. But somehow when I hit 14, it's like I, I, my summers were like, I'm tired of just going swimming at a friend's house or going to summer camp. But more importantly, there was something about the physical act of doing a job that called out to me and has always since. What was the job that you got when you were 14? I was at Arby's, <laughs> the fast food joint. How was that community? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it lasted like three days. I'm dyslexic. So I had so many overrings on the cash register within the first few days, they just fired me. So my, I have the auspicious, you know, resume line. If you look at the very bottom of my resume, I fired from Arby's at age 14 after forging his papers. Rick didn't quite make the cut at Arby's, but he wanted to work. I mean, how many 14-year-olds do you know who would forge papers to get a gig at a fast food restaurant? Uh, I don't know any. But regardless of feeling called to work, Rick, like he said, was privileged. To always know you'll have eggs cooking in the morning or a packed lunch is something a lot of us take for granted. But food is a privilege because so many people don't have it. And this was only exacerbated recently in the global pandemic. In fact, in the U.S., over 42 million people are projected to be food insecure this year. That's one in every eight people, a number that's comparable to what America faced during the Great Depression. The bottom line is food insecurity has been an issue for a long, long time. So while I imagine this wasn't exactly at the forefront of young Rick's mind, eventually it would be. But for now, he had elementary school to deal with. From a very young age, like sixth grade, I was part of a group of people that were rebellious. We were very much about questioning authority. For example, we had a sixth grade graduation that was about, you know, world events, right? And they asked anyone who wanted to submit skits to this graduation that we were going to have to do so. So my friends and I who were complete devotees of Monty Python at the time, which was really happening at that moment. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arms off. There it isn't. But what's that then? Created um, kind of this complete, you know, complete hack of a Monty Python sketch with world leaders, several of which were in were female and we were all guys. And so three of us decided we were going to do drag, including I think was it Margaret Thatcher at the time. I don't know, but we were going to play the female roles. And when that became apparent to the vice principal and the people putting the program together, like, F this, no way we're cutting the sketch. It just fueled us in our sense of self-righteousness. and Wait, a need why do you to, think they um, cut that? Well, sixth graders in drag mm, at graduation, probably. And if you go back to, it, it was the late 70s. It was, that was just not happening. You could not do it. There was no gender fluidity. There was no, everyone was locked into very specific roles of what you did and how you did it. This was also suburban Los Angeles that was very vanilla as much as they, you know, dabbled in Hollywood a, a few miles away. They did not want kids doing that. And, and, you know, they held the power. But that was really the beginning of kind of questioning authority, which, which definitely filtered into uh, more exploration in high school and middle school. We weren't just making trouble. We were questioning why something was happening and doing it in a way that was very threatening. Bottom line is I left really disliking the community that I grew up in. 
Rick's ability to look at his community with a critical eye was what enabled him to break free. Tarzana created these boundaries, put them in a box, and extinguished creativity and diversity. But that was such a contrast to what was happening just 18 miles away. Just a stone's throw from Tarzana was this vibrant but partially underground queer community of West Hollywood. And just a little background history on this. So since the 1930s, WeHo has been a haven for the LGBTQ community, serving as a hub for gay performers, entertainers, and drag queens alike. But as the gay liberation movement found its voice during the latter half of the 20th century, a chasm formed between activists and those resisting LGBTQ rights. LA's urban slash suburban divide had become obvious, and Tarzana wasn't about to welcome drag, especially not at a sixth grade performance. Ultimately, these neighboring cities were worlds apart. They were ideologically completely different. And as Rick decided where he'd go to college, He knew he wanted to be a part of this new world, this world bursting with creativity and self-expression. So when he saw the opportunity to escape this closed-minded suburban landscape, he ran with it. So I imagine that when you're looking towards college, you're not looking towards the local community colleges. I filled out an application as a backup for USC on legal yellow paper with a a turquoise magic marker with crossouts, but I did it because I had to, and I actually got into the fine arts program at USC. Really? Yeah, I don't know what I said in that essay, but I remember begrudgingly because I was very set on going to NYU, partly for the film school, but I think partly I didn't quite know what awaited me, but there was something for me that I needed to do to crack out of the shell 3,000 miles from home. Right, there was a newness. Exactly, there was a, a whole world, and what was the core of that world was a lot of these people went to, quote, film school. L.A. was just so familiar, so boring. He had to escape, but he was leaving the heartland of film, home to the world's most lucrative productions. 1960s and 70s Hollywood was the birthplace for movies like The Godfather, Jaws, Star Wars. It was a generation of films created by the movie brats, the first wave of filmmakers to learn their craft at film school and defy deep-seated norms. As the studio system was built up, there was this underground current of independent filmmakers, and they were on the rise. They were able to create without age-old constraints of the industry. With this revolution happening so close to home, Rick could have stuck his toes into it, but for all it was, it was still too familiar. New York City was the only place he could pop his suburban bubble. So what was that New York City life like? Did did you realize anything about yourself breaking the mold from Los Angeles? Um, the big one was coming out and coming out right as AIDS was happening, right? Which is a really hard thing for a lot of people who didn't go through that or are living as gay men and women now without that experience under them. But well, cause that's a, I feel like that was a time of magnified hatred for the gay community. It was. And it, it really, many of us who, uh, went through that, many of us went through this kind of PTSD coming out of that experience as survivors of AIDS, I was very lucky in the sense that I lost a handful of people. But I definitely had people in my life who lost a Rolodex worth of friends and lovers and colleagues and collaborators. But what it did is it kind of, I got to New York and then there was this blanket of fear thrown over many of us that first few years. I remember finally, I think it was probably 1986, um, that I actually got my first AIDS test. But I remember at that point, it was a two-week wait between test and results. 
And the fear that would go through me waking up with a mild sore throat or waking up if you, you know, it was the middle of summer, you'd be sweaty because it was New York City. Every minor symptom that could be uh, equated with AIDS was a panic. It was literally a panic. But I had my first roommate, he died at age 25. And I remember the first night I arrived, you know, it was three of us that went out and one of, one of the three is no longer with us. And the other one is someone, again, I will, I see every year at Burning Man and I go to parties at his house in the Catskills. And we have kind of, again, our own queer tribe that survived all this. We're survivors. And I think with that comes a feeling of needing to give back and teach and do something different in our age now than we did back then. This was a time where probably for the first half of that era in college, we had a president who wouldn't mention the word AIDS. People don't really remember that. There's so many people that lionize him as a president. He was the biggest enemy. Which president are you talking about? Reagan, I'm sorry. He was the biggest enemy to the gay community that we had seen to to that date, Um, both he and his wife. When people forget that, they have to be reminded that, no, Reagan wasn't some innocuous Republican. He was, a, he was an evil man, uh, at least as I saw it. He was someone who had the ability to begin research and care at a much earlier stage than he did. Mm. And, it was because, and it's because this disease was affecting a community that he didn't care about. He didn't care about. We were a scourge for the religious Jerry Falwells and, and anyone else who uh, we didn't fit in with. I mean, what you see now in the way of acceptance and invitation to uh, queer folks into the community is is wonderful, but it's it's very new and it was fought for for decades. For Rick, the issue he was forced to face head on was the AIDS epidemic. The disease was lethal and rampant, claiming hundreds of thousands of lives. These were his friends, his community. And while the disease continued to wreak havoc across the nation, Rick and others like him faced another challenge. Misinformation about the virus led to more hate against the gay community. Language such as gay cancer and the gay plague only amplified the pain felt by them and fueled the violence. In 1986, the year of Rick's first AIDS test, there had been 351 incidents of violence against members of the community in nine months. So while Rick himself didn't contract it, he still feared the pain, the stigma, and immense weight of social blame. But however difficult this time might have been, New York would serve as a launch pad for the next big leg of his journey. As you're leaving NYU film school, what kind of topics are you trying to to cover? What kind of stories do you think matter? Um, And how are you trying to tell them? When I was leaving NYU, there was a vacuum for me of stories. But as I left, I didn't feel attached to any type of story. What I did have was a boyfriend who was French. I was moving back to Paris and I was able to get, at that point, it was like six month work visas. And so I, I had already learned some French and I moved with him to Paris. And that became my secondary film school. I lived in the cinemas every day after teaching English, which was how I made money, is I'd go to the movies and I'd sit and I'd watch any number of films I had never seen before that were, you know, interesting to me. But at the same time, I got turned on to French culture and French classics. And one of those people that I started reading was Guy de Montpessant. 
who's a French short story. It's like the Mark Twain of French literature. And I, I started understanding that I had a passion to use those stories as a launch pad to pull in uh, not necessarily anything that was anachronistic, but that I could keep those stories and spin them off into uh, a what-if ending. And I did that with one, and it, it actually was a finalist at the Academy's Nickel Fellowship. And it kind of, when I returned, I basically, so my, my work permit expired, and the French were very clear, as I think they need to be, that we don't want Americans coming and working in the film industry. You know, I could have gotten a job as a PA or as an assistant or whatever, as you do here. They didn't want that. So they basically cut off even my English teaching ability. So without any income, I had to move back. I had to back to the States. I had enough inspiration to say, I, I want to try some of these um, ideas as scripts. And so what were the, what, when you say these ideas of what ifs, like... Well, you know, the one of the stories, the one that became a script that had the most traction for me in, in the early part of my career was about a group of four guys who uh, have a rowing club on the Seine and this very voluptuous, wonderful woman who's like their coxswain. She's like their mascot. She's their muse. Well, ends up she, she gets pregnant. And the question is, who's the baby and what do they do? In the story, they all decide to raise the baby, ha live happily ever after. I took that as the first act and then said, what happens 20 years later when that kid is of age? Where, where did that whole scenario go? Uh, you know, that project became kind of my calling card. But the truth was, it didn't land me contemporary dramas. It didn't land me even more character pieces. It was a great way to get in the door. But when I would be considered for other work... Um, that would quietly go away and they'd say, well, well, what can you do with a, you know, rom-com or something? And I found that I could pitch those stories, but my heart wasn't in it. And after several years of writing additional scripts, several of them, which were period films or, or real character dramas that were more in the gritty mold of the 1970s films, I'm like, you're a square peg trying to get into a round hole here and you can keep doing that and maybe you'll crack, but you also... Do you want to keep having temp jobs into your 30s and 40s to kind of support these options, which are notoriously low paying? I was turned on to journalism and I was turned on to the, the fight for truth, but I needed a new area to try and express that in. So I took a break. Working in a company or industry that doesn't share your values is just exhausting. And after years of advocating for himself in this volatile industry, Rick began to wonder, is this Hollywood dream actually worth it? He realized that the real dream worth pursuing was to tell meaningful stories and positively influence other people's lives. If he couldn't do that as a screenwriter, then he'd need to make some significant changes. When I stopped approaching film to make ends meet, I actually became a researcher and writer for Ariana Huffington before the Huffington Post. What I got to do was see inside a whole bunch of stories that were really interesting. And at that time, Fast Food Nation came out. So there was a lot of interest around food justice, factory farming, and all these other things. And I was coming off of the, the buzz of Edward R. Murrow's story and saying he did Harvest of Shame, which is a se the seminal documentary on farm labor. And what I said to myself is, what is happening now? What was the humanistic story of these people's lives who were literally feeding us? 
And so I started kind of scratching around that and simultaneously had an urge to go to cooking school. So to me, it was, no, I want to learn about the art of cooking as a way to build community and as a way to satisfy creative urges, but I wasn't pursuing it professionally. One of the great skill sets of um, being a screenwriter of historic work was that I became a really good researcher and I loved it. The research part of it, you had to pull me out of it to get me to start writing because it was so, I submerged myself in it. So I really started doing that around migrant farm workers. And one breadcrumb led to the next. And I found that the people that were working on the ground in that issue were so passionate that their passion became contagious. That passion would turn into the beginning of a book, a photojournalistic piece called The Migrant Project. So as I got deeper in The Migrant Project, I got deeper into the communities. The connections I made were closer to the farm workers and closer to more intense situations. And in one outing, I was basically thrown in the back of a van with a blanket tossed over me so that I wouldn't be seen as I entered a farm. And this wave of just like raw sewage kind of washed over me as far as the smell. When they lifted the blanket and let me stand up, what I was, what was in contrast to that smell was this farm of, of grapes. Everywhere you looked was table grapes, probably 108 degrees. Slowly as we got out of the van, the guys kind of went into the small, very decrepit house and came out with uh, two younger men and one older man following them who ended up, again, didn't speak Spanish, but as they began to describe their story to me, had been smuggled onto this farm by a Russian farmer who had them far enough out from any connection that they basically were kept as slave labor. When you talk to them, did they know how terrible their situation was? Like, what did they say about their situation? On one side, it was better from where they came from, believe it or not. But it was a huge, huge blow to them thinking they were coming to America with a much different idea of what that would engender. The exclamation point at the end of this visit was having the blanket thrown over me as we left so that, again, if the farmer was there, he wouldn't see me, but that I poked up my head as we drove out. And on the entry to the farm was the Sun Made Raisin logo. And that just kind of ripped through me as like, whoa, I grew up eating how many thousands of those little sun-made raisin boxes? And this is... And they're almost endorsing this. Exactly. Now, this was an independent farmer that sold to Sunmade, but it didn't matter to me. Sunmade is culpable in this. It gave a greater sense of urgency. And the photographs that came out of it were really kind of intense. There's one in particular of an older man who is, is the father of this, just kind of hugging himself in the kitchen... Um, by this this pot, this dented pot of, of beans that he had made that just was like something from the 1940s. And it, it reinforced that in 2003, and I'm sure even to today, these conditions are thriving, unfortunately, in California farms. Rick's sense of urgency translated onto his photographs. Each face squinting from the harsh Californian sun depicts a look of hardship, showing us the human cost of feeding America. Fueled by the American dream, many immigrants arrive in the U.S. with the notion of a better life. But instead, they find language and cultural barriers, terrible living conditions, and career isolation. 
Immigrants go into farm labor because it's a job that no one else wants to do. The work is hard, the pay is poor, but for many, it's still significantly better than what they might have made in their home country and just the situations in their home country. Like there is gang violence and military violence in some of these countries. And unfortunately, a lot of growers know this, making exploitation the dark shadow behind many of America's most beloved foods. It's hard to see the smiling red bonneted woman on the sun-made box in the same way. Hidden behind each little carton or whatever packaging it might be, lay real hands in a real person. And with Rick's photographs, these migrant workers were finally placed where people could see them. And with notice came change. Just about that book, you had a very interesting foreword. Yeah, I had the the amazing good fortune of, of having Dolores Huerta write the foreword to it. Can you tell us who that is? Dolores Huerta co-founded the uh, UFW with Cesar Chavez. California's San Joaquin Valley holds some of the richest farmland in the United States. Yet those who work the vineyards live in poverty. A strike has been called against the growers of California grapes. The UFW was the biggest farm worker union, and it was a very storied genesis of their journey. Dolores, even till today, she's 91 years old, and the woman is a firecracker of stances for human rights across the board, not just farm workers. She's been a, the grand marshal of LGBT pride parades. She just put out a really strong statement about Juneteenth as a national holiday. Uh, she's been in the trenches from the very beginning. A bit more background. So Dolores, along with labor leader Cesar Chavez, helped organize the Delano Grape Strike. It was historic, with Filipino and Latino workers marching to protest years of poor pay and terrible working conditions. The five-year fight ended with grape growers signing their first union contracts, granting them better pay, benefits, and protections. Dolores, always at the front lines of human rights issues, has fought tirelessly for change. So it speaks volumes that she wrote the foreword of Rick's book. This was something she wanted to be a part of. I'm sure she knew just how much of an impact it could have on people. But one of the people who'd be most impacted by the Migrant Project was Rick. I want to start going towards Food Forward. So going towards the beginnings of Food Forward, can you tell me the environment in which that idea uh, arose? There's no question that my heart stayed with the farm worker communities. And as the opportunities came to travel the migrant project back to the communities from which they came, I got a deeper and deeper understanding of agriculture and this cruel irony that the people whom are feeding us cannot afford the food. And so food insecurity was a rural issue in my head before it even became a, an urban issue when 2009 happened and the economy crashed and you started seeing people at um, food pantries that would never have been there before. The idea of food waste was a big issue in cooking school. You'd prepare these beautiful meals and then half of it at least would get thrown away. Those two issues really started kind of just percolating for me as uh, I went through my other photography projects, which became my career. You know, for about 10, 12 years, I was shooting these large scale projects. I was doing annual reports. I was, you know, flown around the country by nonprofits to do storytelling for them. But at my heart, there is something about food being this unifier. 
And when I started seeing my own neighborhood through the lens of all this fruit hanging on trees, and uh, you just couldn't not see that grapefruit tree that was laden with fruit and the squirrels running around on it, we're like, these are perfect grapefruits. Why aren't they going somewhere? So I had a friend block and a half away with two beautiful trees in her backyard. And I said, Heather, do you use these navel oranges and these tangerines? She goes, maybe a few, but take what you want. Put an ad on Craigslist. A few people showed up, dropped the stuff two miles from our house. But there was an immediacy in that moment of purity, simplicity. Get off your fucking phone. You get away from the computer. And you could have done this 300 years ago. And then we came back the next week and the next week. And then we added the, the, the um, navel orange tree to it. And it was about 800 pounds total from one backyard. Did you like think to yourself, wait, if this is just one backyard, what does two, what does three look like? What I did is I climbed the tree and I, there was a little tree house in the tree, which was pretty adorable. And I like stood there and literally became five years old again. And then looked out at all the neighbors. And I think of the four adjoining properties, three had fruit trees. And I'm like, there's a lot to this idea that is yet to be explored. That was really the beginning. From the little backyard treehouse suspended up in branches, Rick looked out at all the fruit trees decorating the neighborhood around him. Divided by fences, these homes had something to offer, an essential component of living, food. And Rick, having spent years of his life dedicated to the migrant project, understood how essential it was. But if food is so important, why is it constantly being thrown away? In the U.S., food takes up more space in landfills than anything else. And we discard more food than any other country in the world. About 80 billion pounds of food gets thrown away every year. That's like having each American throw 650 perfectly good apples right into the garbage. And with that in mind, think about the migrant workers Rick photographed. Many of them can't even afford to pay for the food they help produce. So while Food Forward wasn't a perfect solution for this, it was a big step in the right direction. I mean, people generally eat about four pounds of food each day. So imagine how many people 800 pounds could feed. And all of this from just one backyard. By going back to the origin of how farming began, Rick managed to redefine food consumption. But he didn't stop there. And so how did you begin to explore that idea? I started posting on other electric bulletin boards, whether it was Craigslist. I started doing Starbucks. I started reaching out to Slow Food, trying to find volunteers that wanted to both harvest, but also uh, find homeowners that wanted to donate. And, you know, we just started getting a few more volunteers. And then this one was really interested in working with volunteers. This one was interested in working with homeowners. And somehow I became the default hub of it because I understood the relationship. From this small backyard harvest, Rick and I took a car ride over to the Food Forward Warehouse. On the way, we talked about Burning Man, our lives, and just overall got along really well. I really liked hanging out with Rick. Maybe we'll do a burn in the future at some point. But what was really incredible was the change in scale. This warehouse is massive. So this on any given day will hold like 150 pallets, and a pallet's yeah. about 1,000 pounds. As you can see, they can get up to seven, eight feet. Oh, wow. And, and you know, it's a whole variety of stuff. And any given 
day and just changes stuff. It's usually here maybe 24, 48 hours and then it goes yeah. out. Nothing's held any longer than that. So could you explain a little bit about what this operation is, where we're standing um, or sitting in right now, and also maybe a little bit more description of, uh, of the location? So we're sitting in the produce pit stop, which is in Southeast LA in the city of Bell. It is a close to 20,000 foot warehouse that houses Food Forward's wholesale recovery operation, which is by far its biggest. It didn't happen until seven years after Food Forward began, believe it or not. We just started getting these phone calls from indiscriminate wholesalers saying, we see you come up in food rescue on Google. Can you guys take seven pallets of zucchinis? And we're like, shit, we can't. And then we'd get another one a week later for onions to the point where me and my team were like, we got to do something here because we have stepped up our ability to take larger amounts of food and we have a network of need around us. We just got to figure this out. Bottom line is the pipeline expanded and we scaled in a way that was, you know, first year of wholesale was uh, in our planning grant was going to be 300,000 pounds of produce. Instead, it was 4.1 million pounds. So extraordinary, 12 times what you expected to do. Last year, we were at 62 million, and this is within seven years of growth. So each year, it's been almost a 10 million pound step up, which is a lot of food. The desire to be better, to maintain a level of backyard intimacy and continue to do more for the community, this is what drives food forward. It's inevitable. Food is something that's always going to be essential, and there are always going to be people who don't have enough of it. Before COVID-19, about 35 million people suffered from food insecurity, and that number has only increased during the devastation of the pandemic. So a stat that blows my mind is 30 to 40% of food never actually gets eaten, yet all these people are going hungry. So something is definitely wrong. And that's a major problem that Rick intends to address. Eliminating food waste starts by feeding the hungry. And food forward 62 million pounds can do a lot. And hunger demands immediacy, especially in the middle of a pandemic. What did the pandemic bring in terms of challenges? Because I imagine a lot of things were shut down. And like you said, you got the warehouse in 2019. We were not a year in when the pandemic hit. We're barely six, seven months. On one side, the the need was just exploding as far as people who were suddenly locked down, who were losing jobs, who were, you know, they could have been a yoga instructor, never been in a food line before, suddenly found themselves needing food. All the way to those same individuals who have been food insecure for decades due to all kinds of injustices were even saddled with greater uncertainty. So we saw the need on one side and Food Forward has always been balancing the abundance with need. The abundance came when suddenly... There were all these farmers and wholesalers sitting on giant loads right. of produce. Because the supply chain was all Supply chain up. was completely disrupted. It was an opportunity for us. We, in a matter of a few weeks, architected what the sprout could be. And we got a few funders that saw the vision very quickly. Less than 10 funders came in with a million dollars cumulatively. And we started the sprout. And that was a pivot that I never would have expected, but it was everything Food Forward needed to be at the time. So we kind of met the moment and then some. Just looking at this, again, like looking at the progression, looking at like your life and then just the the progression of, of going from the, the backyard to this, like, I think you see that, you see that passion. I don't think someone could have taken it from so small to so big while still maintaining the integrity of the smallness and still in the intimacy. I, I'm really glad you see that. 
As I looked around, I was amazed, but I was particularly drawn to what looked like a giant room, maybe 40 feet high and 100 feet wide, and it was in the middle of the warehouse. And this thing, this giant room, actually turned out to be a fridge. And across the front wall of this fridge was a massive mural. Also, this refrigerator is massive, massive, uh, and could hold what, like hundreds of uh, hundreds of pallets. And across the whole front of it is this black and white picture of a what was it again? It's the original LA wholesale produce market with horses and carriages. I mean, it's where the history of produce on the West Coast began. It is our touchstone. And as in our conversation earlier, Sam, I'm really dedicated to tying all that shit together because to me, that's very exciting. We're not doing anything new when it comes down to it. We're really not. These pieces have all been disparate in various iterations. We're synthesizing it and we're scaling it for 2021. From childhood to adulthood, Rick has been fueled with passion. Questioning authority led to a fierce investment in social justice. From fighting for LGBTQ rights to showing the hardships of farm laborers through photographs, Rick felt called to highlight the important stories that go unnoticed, the ones that are often forgotten in the chaos of everyday life. It's too easy to take the fruit trees we see in our neighborhoods for granted, to think of the untouched food that stays in our refrigerator for days, but millions of people go without the luxury of even knowing whether there will be dinner, including those who allow the food to show up on our plates in the first place. It's a pressing issue, one that Rick understands the gravity of. So he started small by picking fruit off of trees. Who knew that by doing so, one could begin to remedy one of the world's major issues? And I guess Rick understood this. And I think this whole experience, this experience of spending the day with Rick, starting by just picking a few measly lemons, that initial harvest brought us closer to nature. The origin of humanity brought me closer to Rick and his idea. It made me feel grateful simply for being fed and for being alive. Rick's right. Food is a unifier and a much more powerful one than we might think. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez. Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohel Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. 
To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.